This is Christ Presbyterian Church with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the School of Discipleship series, Confessional Theology. This multi-part series introduces the doctrines, terminology, and methodology behind our Reformed approach and our communal confession of faith. How are we to define conversion? Does it derive from a personal religious experience? Does it happen in a moment? Or does it grow over time? Is there any objective way of knowing the ingredients that make up a genuine Christian conversion? Find out this and more on this episode of Confessional Theology. So it's pretty important that we, we talk about this topic of conversion because uh, what? I mean, what? when we talk about conversion, we're kind of getting to the very heart of do you got it or do you not? I mean, is it, is it yours or is it not? Is it, is it going to impact you or is it not? It's a pretty pivotal moment in our, in our uh, discussion of Christian theology and, and, um, and this whole issue of salvation. In other words, you certainly could... You know, we, we can distinguish our salvation doctrines into two. We talked about it at the very beginning of the course. So welcome again to uh, Confessional Theology, part two of this semester. Um, food included, I might add, just in case you didn't notice. <clears throat> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's part two. And, and you know, roughly, we kind of got into it a little bit right before we left. But roughly, you can start to distinguish these by, by not, not fully, so there'll be some exceptions, but, you know, Christian uh, uh, redemption accomplished and then redemption applied. Uh, there's a great book by uh, Murray, John Murray, that, that if you're interested, it may still be in the bookstore. We used to have it there, but it's a great book. That's the title. And it's a wonderful way to categorize the doctrines. Some are objective doctrines, uh, doctrines that are not uh, reliant upon anything related to us subjectively. And then there are those subjective doctrines and distinguishing those two are quite important. Um, I find a lot of lazy theology is often the result of not really asking, well, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a doctrine that <coughs> pertains to the work of God upon me subjectively? Or are we talking about a doctrine that pertains to the work of God that that, that uh, you know uh, takes effect outside of me, of which I believe in? So belief is in itself a subjective, but beliefs or belief as a noun is of course objective. Why don't you put it on the table and let them go around? Thank you. Um, so this, this conversion, I think this quote is a really helpful point that introduces us to what we're talking about today, which is Christian conversion. Um, you know, as I think I mentioned before, uh, it, one of the ways I think, particularly among our own tribe of evangelicals, if you will, is it's, it's a pretty serious uh, uh, mistake to always associate conversion with experience. Um, what are some other ways? Uh, so we've already, this obviously picks up the idea that having a mountaintop experience may, but may not be a Christian conversion. Um, and again, I'm not going to say that you don't, you, it, it, a conversion can't involve an experience, but it's, 
but to the diagnostician, the, the, if you're trying to diagnose something, if you're if you're the doctor of faith and a person comes to you to be examined as to whether you are a genuine Christian, hopefully you, from a course like this and others, would be trained to know that, okay, I'm not going to downplay the experience necessarily. It, it can, experiences like a waterfall, so it can't be turned on and off, it comes, it goes, whatever. But I'm not listening for that. I'm not necessarily listening for this person who says, hey, I went to a retreat one day and really, you know, had a big time experience. And and that's my basis of assurance, you know, because you could go to a, a rock concert. Um, I could almost guarantee it that a good band could 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 create that experience for you. They know music. Uh, they're intuitive. They can easily do it. I know because I used to do it when I led music. Uh, y'all have never seen me lead music. I don't even know I can play my guitar anymore. But back in the college days, man, I, you know, we could whoop them up. And we knew exactly what we were doing. And, of course, I meant it all in good faith and all in good, you know, and all that. And I'm not even saying it's bad to whip it up a little bit. Have a little fun. But I'd be very careful. Back then I wouldn't because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But back now I'd be very careful if I did whoop them up. Uh, to really caution them that let's let's not let this be the defining thing, you know, that, that that's happening. Anyway, that's just a point for for experience. What could be some other ways that you could have a false religious conversion or Christian conversion? What are other influencers do you think? Good. Good. Nothing to compel, nothing to repel, save Christ. Are you really a Christian convert? Or are you want to be pro football quarterback convert? And you, you're dazzled by this man who is in front of your youth group and he's so good looking and he's so sharp and together and look at him. Steve Barkowski, that was my day hero in Atlanta, Georgia. And, um, and man, I hear he's a Christian and I'm listening to every word he says and somehow I don't put it together in my brain, just maybe being a Christian makes good things like becoming a quarterback, blah, 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 you know how it goes. Yeah, I think false ambitions, you know, where there's a, what we're offering, at least presumably is not actually what we're offering. You know, you want your life to be together. You want to get healthy, wealthy, and wise. You want to, you know, have, have an abundant life, and we don't qualify what we mean. I mean, you know, the abundant life where you're going to learn more and more to share in the sufferings of Christ and have an inner joy abundance for now. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of, so false, false ambition, we'll call it. False motivation, whatever. What else? Christian culture. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, there's a cultic reason to do it. I'll call it the cultic reason. I mean cult in a sociological term. And, and um, my cult is doing it. My, my tribe, my, my group. And, and it's particularly interesting. Um, and again, I hope that the, ser- the session is discerning about it. But I notice that the conversions tend to come in waves over the years. At first, I would just say, boy, the Holy Spirit's moving. That's why it's coming in waves. And it may be. Okay, that's why we're not going to do all these things. You know, you know how to do statisticians, right? You know, stat, a, a statistician, but you don't. You have to be careful that while you don't form a correlation between a one-to-one correlation between something that is associated with something else necessarily, 
You also want to be careful that you don't do an anti-correlation that, that says that something like that happens. So you see what I'm saying? So, so in other words, the way I would, I would phrase it a little simpler is, is just because you have um, data that says that 98% of the people who do keto diet end up dying, um, well, it doesn't mean that keto caused the death. It might mean that you had a lot of fat people trying to lose weight fast, and it didn't. It might not have worked, but they they died because they were overweight and they had a heart attack. You see, so we got to be careful in the church like that. Um, tribalism, where, where of course, uh, you know, my friend and their friend, and all of a sudden it feels comfortable and easy, and I want to do it. I saw them doing it, and um, yeah, hopefully the session is wise to say, maybe God has used this this conversion of friends that's fine maybe they are witnesses that's fine are we to be witnesses there's nothing wrong with that but let's go a little, we're, we're going to ask well, but what are we really looking for here that's the question what would discern true religious or Christian conversion anything else I think of the TVs the, the Christian so called Christian TV shows yeah they have all kinds of mixed messages yeah Yep. And people get caught up in them because there's not a church nearby. But yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, the TV and populism, I'll call it, maybe. Uh, this idea of I want to be part of the bigger world, and I'm not sure what exactly TV does other than it just brings it into a place where there's no real opportunity to respond to it other than to sit there. But, you know, that doesn't mean that people haven't been converted by the TV. My guess is uh, Billy Graham has a whole slew of them. But Billy Graham was the first to tell you that, I can't remember, I don't want to quote him. He spoke at my graduation. I'm going to walk while I talk. Um, but I remember him saying that one of his big mistakes in, in his um, evangelistic crusades that he learned later was that he did not, um, in the early years especially, he didn't do enough diligence to connect them to a local community, a church. Mm-hmm wherein that true conversion could be worked out um, and followed up. And if you remember the later years, if you ever involved in a, anybody here involved in a crusade by Billy Graham, you remember if you got involved in the later years, how they would send a team well in advance and, um, and they would prepare churches not only to receive these people, but to connect them quickly and see if it works out. And he began to change conversions he began to change his definition of conversions, though, to see by those who would actually work that out. We had one year of training yeah. before he came in with the mm-hmm. crusade. So that was a very good. So here's again, and again, I think there's a lot of dangers to the decisionistic model. We're going to talk about that, which he was still committed to. But at least I think that was a good uh, thing. Well, let's let's turn the corner a little bit. Um, the second, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Now, I referenced this letter once before, but I don't think I read it. Correct? You remember this? Um, th- I find this to be a nice sort of uh, uh, lead into how does this affect the way we gain Christian assurance or grow in faith. So it's this is a little bit more of a you're struggling with your faith, but it also pertains to obviously a clue as to what saving faith is. But I find this to be a letter that's just never left me. So I'm going to read it to you now. And I think you'll enjoy this. Have any of y'all read this letter before? Maybe one or two of you? Okay. 
so I didn't want to bore too many of you. So R.L. Dabney was a 19th century theologian, one of the best, and also a pastor in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Uh, a little story about him: he, you know, he, he turned very bitter after the Civil War. Um, you know, some, you know, so obviously he got a little bit too wrapped up in the nationalism of that day, which in that day were two nationalisms. But um, but but he was a very good and genuine man to illustrate it. He uh, he was very humble, and he was probably one of the foremost scholars of that day. But back then, of course, they were also pastors. And uh, I think it was Princeton asked him to come and and be uh, a, take over the school there. And he said, I will do so only if my church would release me. And he turns to his church and he said, you know, um, if, if I'm called, then, then you release me. If, if you feel that I'm still called here, I'll stay. And they did a vote and they called for him to stay and he turned him down. Um, you know, and so it just is the kind of man that, that I think, you know, you, you, it has a lot of honorable things about him. But anyway, but this is after he had a tragic situation with the death of many members in his family, and he had gone into a, a, a bit of a spiritual depression. And then he has his friend here, uh, Vaughn, who's another uh, pastor, theologian of the day. And this was his friend's response at a certain point. But it was, it's kind of interesting to hear a friend rebuking a friend, not rebuking, but encouraging a friend, but a friend who is probably a preeminent theologian and would have known better. But yet, this is an example of where we need each other. So there's a lot of stuff in this that I kind of like. Well, anyway, let me read it. Somebody else, I'll read it. Dear R.L. Dabney, Yours of the 28th just received a relieved attention of feeling which has held me painfully ever since Mrs. Dabney's last. I dreaded to hear and then to hear you are in any degree better was an inexpressible comfort. It melted me to hear of your prayers for faith and dying grace. The stress of such constant and severe bodily pain is enough of itself to try you and the tempter is sure to use it to affect your hope. Pray on, dear old soldier, of course, but listen to me for a while. I want to give you a morsel of honey. In other words, he was hoping to die, you know, and he was wishing to die. A morsel of honey out of one of my dead lions. Where is that? Samson. Though, in fact, there is a large herd of them still living, and they roar on me after often still I am sick with fear. So what do you think is happening there? He's a man who's gone through depression himself. And this is one where, you know, God enabled him to overcome it, to slay the lion, and the, the, you know, like the Samson. He says, there are many lions still around me, you know, great temptations, but this is one that I feel like I've suffered uh, with you and before you, and here's what I've learned. So that's kind of neat. You want more faith? Do you remember in the stress of your trial how faith comes? Let me remind you, although you know it, you know we are sanctified through the truth. Sanctification is just the growth of the particular graces of the Spirit of which faith is one. Just here is where Christians make a great mistake. When they want more faith or want to know whether the faith they have is the right sort of faith, instead of looking at the things to be believed, stop, they turn their eyes inward and scrutinize their faith. They want to see something in their faith to trust in, something that will certify their faith. Of course, self-examination is all right, but not when it practically substitutes faith for our Lord, grace, and righteousness. Even a great theologian thinker is apt is as apt to make this mistake when he has come into the practical stress of this awful world as a common Christian. Now suppose a traveler comes to a bridge and he is in doubt about trusting himself to it. What does he do to breed confidence in the bridge? 
He looks at the bridge. He gets down and examines it. He doesn't stand at the bridge head and turn his thoughts curiously on his own mind to see if he has confidence in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence, and yet he wants more, how does he make his faith grow? Why? In the same way, he still continues to examine the bridge. Now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while, as in don't look inward, and you just think of what you are allowed to trust in. Think of the master's... I never can get through this thing. I just never can. Such an endearing thing, two men talking like this. Think of the master's power. Think of his love. Think how he is interested in the soul that searches for him and will not be comforted until he find him. Think of what he has done in his work. What blood of, of his is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners that ever lived. Don't you think it will master yours? Think of his great righteousness. Will it not avail for all your hope to gain? That great work is enough. It needs not to be supplemented. It meets every demand. It warrants you to come into the king's very presence, assured of welcome because you can come in the name of the king's son. Think of the master when you want to, your faith to grow. Now, dear old friend, I have done to you just what I would, have you, would want you to have done to me if I were in your place. The great theologian, after all, is just as any other one of God's children. And the simple gospel, talked simply to him, is just as essential to his comfort as it is to a milkmaid or to a plowboy. May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence, Christ, in all his work and all his personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see him. I have been praying that God would quiet your pains as you advance and enable you to see the gladness of the gospel at every step. Goodbye, God be with you as he will. Think of the bridge. Well, what do you think? Your thoughts. What have we learned about con true religious conversion, but also true religious assurance, also true religious sanctification? What have we learned? The thing being... Yeah. So you don't look at the experience, how I'm feeling. You don't look at what other things. That's good. Let's keep this going. Your actions and how well you're acting, performing. You don't look at yourself. You don't look at yourself and how confident you feel right now about it all. You don't look at your circumstances. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not God's, you know. I had a car wreck. It's not a sign. You don't look at that. That's not the. That's not how you're saved by no car wrecks, as evidence that you're saved. I've had that happen, where you know, how maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God doesn't love me because these bad things wouldn't be happening to me, kind of thing. Yeah, you look at Christ, and and you know the way our confession is going to talk about it is you're going to look at Christ, and how He has accomplished, and how He had faith for me, how He. You know, and you just go right through it, and what he accomplished to build that bridge, the mediator, how he mediated us to God by what he did, and the promises of the scripture that unequivocally promised that if you believe in what he did, you shall be saved. You know, it's that simple. Um, if we if we if we're given the confidence, if we're given the will, we're gonna talk about what faith is in a minute, to believe in him, then that's it. 
Well, that's that's a good intro, I think, to this issue of religious conversion. Well, let's uh, move on and go to the confessional theology handout. Yeah, we're going to pray, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, they did a lot of things. They they had an experience. That that's a great example. He said, "Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord,' but you know, I never knew you." That's right. Did I not? Did I not? Did I not? And you could write, put in all those things, right? Okay. Well, let's pray. Someone pray for us. Alan, would you? Amen. So, chapter 14, could someone read, if you can see it here, or you can read it of your own, but if someone could read uh, this uh, statement about saving faith. Yeah. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, which, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer. Next, somebody else. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God Himself speaks therein, and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal act of saving faith are accepting, receiving, by the way, if you're going to be examining people to become uh, as to their Christianity, that what I've got outlined there should be practically memorized. At least accepting, receiving, and resting. Just keep that in mind. There it is. That's the principal acts of saving faith, and that's what we're looking for. Nothing in there does it talk about experience or uh, promises, you know, false promises, you know, all that stuff. Finally, three, someone read that. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Notice it said many. It concedes that assurance, notice this. I mean, now I'm going to let you do Think about it. What did he just concede about faith? That, is it possible in this passage to have faith and not assurance? What yes. I like about that is, is that um, it, it's, if you're struggling with your assurance, mm -hmm. that's okay. Yeah. You know, it says it's okay. I, I'm, gonna say, I'm not going to say it's okay. I feel like you have a right to your assurance, and it's a very, just like I'm not going to say it's okay to not be sanctified. But what you're saying is you can still be justified. That, I know what you're saying. I just, for the sake of others, wanted to make sure we didn't. Yeah, so make, make it clear. You know, when we talk about saving faith, we are talking about fundamentally justification. And, and when we talk about assurance, 
we're talking about fundamentally sanctification. It's something that that a mature Christian should have, but it's not because they didn't have saving faith before they were a mature Christian. It's that they probably had some bad theology about what assurance is. You see? It seems like it's a growth process also. Yeah. It, well, it can be. I think you can have it if you have good theology from day one, but the point is, is that, that uh, there's a lot of reasons where it could possibly not be there. And I'm thinking of someone right now, many of you know who I'm talking about perhaps, who, uh, who comes to our church, and um, I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty convinced she's a Christian, but uh, she just can't, can't get to that, that assurance. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm as certain she's a Christian as anybody I know in this room. But she just can't find a way to get there. But good news, I'm not despairing. I'm despairing because I'm saddened that she doesn't have the full joy of her salvation that can come by experience, by, by assurance. But, um, but, I'm, but I'm not despairing because I, with the session who confirmed her faith, believe that she's a, uh, she has saving faith. And that's an interesting kind of thing there. So keep that in mind. Well, let's look at this. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into the study. I think that you're getting into a lot of stuff now. Those are good questions. Thank you. But but let's get into it because we're actually going to peel it apart here. So let's go down to, oh, I'm in the wrong one. Let's get back to our, our page here and let's have some discussion. We'll come back to repentance uh, in a minute. So here's here's a long sort of of, of, of primer here to get us going. Um, someone read Acts two thirty seven through forty seven. So those are the doctrines that have been pulled out of the scripture from our consensus. Now we're going to go back and and uh, make some observations uh, about various things concerning conversion. Now, this is a passage that's very, very, very important as we think about conversion and what it teaches us about conversion. Um, just a little bit about that. Uh, what was the context? What was required? How was faith born? What was the result? What do you see? First of all, context. What just happened? They were told that they had killed their Messiah. They'd called, they'd been killed Messiah. And so what had happened is a great sermon and uh, of course uh, Pentecost and, um, and the Pentecost followed by a sermon so we have a very supernatural event um, we have a sermon that now contextualizes that event or puts it in the redemptive historical process key when you read the sermon who's he talking to 
Now, I'm not going to read the sermon now, but if you did, it's, he's talking pretty much to the nations. Multiple nations are there, but they're, they are both Israel and nation Gentiles who are proselyte Jews. So, by and large, you're dealing with people who have already been prepared by the Word of God, and they are coming in expectation of the Messiah. They have been prepared, there it is, by the Word of God. Um, he will reference, he will quote, he will argue from the Old Testament why it is that this Christ is the Messiah, and why this anti-Babel experience is the sign of the Messiah. And so we often don't think about that, but that's a pretty big observation. There was the ministry of the Word. There were promises made. There was the defense of Christ, who He is. Doctrine of Christ was, re was there. And so, yeah, there was some content. Call it what you want. Theology, dogma, you know, beliefs, whatever you want to call it, there was some content. And it was there's content to those who are probably those who were coming to the temple. Uh, it was a temple pilgrimage. Pretty zealous Jews. These are people who are pretty devout people coming. Um, and this doesn't diminish their conversion, okay? But it's just, you know, that's what's happening. Um, now, what was required? We, well, we hear... That's also the context. Actually, we should put that one in the context. We had a word context, but what else do we have evidence of? Cut to the heart. Now, what would that, what doctrine, theologians, now that you are budding theologians, what doctrine are you thinking about right now? No. Yes. No. Yes. What do we call that in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in our confession? Anybody know? Well, you remember. Yes, it's effectual calling. How did they come to the cut of the heart? They came to the cut of the heart um, because the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, brought a regeneration, a cut to the heart. You know, now we're going to get to your repentance. It's there. You'll get there. And that's why, not that's why, because of where they were, you had fertile soil. You had fertile soil. So what is conversion? Well, it starts with some fertile soil, i.e. the Word of God and the decree of God that, that is sending the Holy Spirit. You can preach yourself blind and they're not going to be converted without the Holy Spirit regenerating the soul. You can regenerate all you want with some kind of a spirit, but if there is no something to believe in objectively, you will have no Christian conversion. You will have any kind of other conversion. It's the both. There it is. Number one, what's a conversion? There's got to be a genuine body of content to believe in, and there's got to be the will, the desire to believe in it. We call that being born again. Because we know that according to Romans chapter, what, one and two and into half of three, that no one seeks truth. No one wants righteousness. Not even one. We wouldn't want 
this. We would be rebellious. This is getting close to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want that. I want to do what's right in my own eyes. So we wouldn't do that except that the Holy Spirit is working with the Scripture. There it is. What is required? Now we're back to the, con- rec- uh, the required, what, your point. What does Peter tell him to do? You've got to first repent. Now, in Scripture you're going to find this quite often. Uh, repentance and faith are often spoken of and lumped together. You know, we're saved by grace through faith alone. It didn't say faith and repentance. Or you must repent and be baptized. We'll get to that one in a minute. Um, and uh, it didn't say faith. So there are many times in Scripture where you'll find if you'll just have faith, and it doesn't say the word repentance, and it'll say repent, and it doesn't say the word faith. So uh, we believe generally that what we're seeing here is that, that these are two sides of the same coin, more or less. In other words, think about it. Can you possibly, we've already asked the question. Um, Notice our chapter, for instance. It starts with, uh, the the title is what? Saving faith. Now, why did it say saving faith? What do you think the obvious implication is? Anybody? There could be other faiths. That's why it's saving faith. You can have other kind of faiths, sanctifying faith, maybe. But this is saving faith. And what do we know about saving faith? Well, to believe on Christ is to turn away de facto from other faiths. Saving faith is faith in Christ. And we already know that there's, remember what we talked about before in in our apologetics, there is nobody that doesn't live by faith. Everybody lives by faith. There is no atheist really, at least not in a religious way. Maybe intellectually, but not really what I'd call life way. You're believing something. You're putting your confidence in something. You're trusting something. You're, you're, you're empowering something. That you're giving something power that will drive the whole of your life. Think about it. If, you're, if you think that getting married is going to be the end of all your struggles, you have faith in marriage. And you'd be woefully, <laughs> woefully misled. There you go. Good, good one. I knew you'd have to. I knew you'd come up with something like that. So isn't that, isn't that important, guys? This is, these are important things we're dealing with right now. So saving faith, always, you can't have saving faith except that you, what? Dish the prior faith. So some will say, Repent. Dish the prior faith and believe in Christ. Put on a new faith. But many times you'll see that only one will be said because the other is always implied. So that's important. So when we talk about repentance and faith, I'm talking about one event. I don't have faith without repentance. I don't have repentance without faith. It's, it's, it's a one event deal, even if we're flipping that coin as to which side we want to look at at the moment. Okay? Okay. Any questions about that? So now we have what is required, repentance and faith, or faith. And we're going to talk about what is faith. But how was faith born? Now it's interesting. Uh, What did he require? He didn't just say have, repent. He said, this is one that just jerks Christians all over the place if they've been in the sort of, you know, revivalist tradition. It didn't say, 
repent and pray with me over here by the tree. Good thing to do, maybe. I'm not opposed to prayer in the tree. So remember, I'm not being you know, that. What does it say? Let the Word of God speak. Be baptized. I mean, you know, if that were the only time in the whole Bible, maybe I'd think, okay, you know, it's just kind of a thing. I don't know. Well, I hope I wouldn't do that. But listen, but when Jesus gives a great commission and he tells you how to make disciples, and he reaches into his infinite wisdom, he says, teaching them, you know, uh, you know, go thee for all the world, making disciples of all, bad, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things that I've commanded you which is now instruct them and ground them and et cetera, make disciples. It's just hard for me to imagine why we can just skip over that as if you're a Christian until you're baptized. Now, I love this story of St. Augustine and his confessions. I think I've probably said it to you before. I don't know. But just keep in mind that, that you know, when I grew up, when I first became a Christian, people would refer to St. Augustine a lot in his conversion. And, and it was always the, the story of the garden, the garden experience. He'd go to the garden and he heard a voice coming out from the tower, <coughs> repent, um, read, read. And he would turn to the scripture in Romans, I think it was something like 10. And it sort of tells him to repent and, um, and turn away from all these sins. And he'd list these specific sins. And out of that Augustine will later confess he became a good Christian moralist. You know, he really was cleaning his life up. But it wasn't until he baptized in chapter 9 where he said, I finally, the, 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 the burden dropped from my, my shoulders. I finally had assurance. I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember exactly the words. I finally had it. You know, that where he could do. Now, what is important about that? Um, and remember, if you know the story of Augustine, it's very closer. It's closer, at least, to the first century. Um, but let me read this little quote from George Bevet Limbeck. He, he's, a, he's a historian, a the, theologian historian, um, and a pretty good one at that. And uh, he says this, pagan converts to the Christian mainstream did not, for the most part, first understand the faith and then decide to become Christians. Rather, and I think he maybe overstates it just a little bit, but anyway, he's making a point. Rather, um, the process was reversed. They first decided, and then they understood. He's not commenting on Acts, by the way. He's commenting on the early church, third, fourth century. They first converted, it says, uh, what does it say here? Rather, they, they first decided, and then they understood. More precisely, they were first attracted by the Christian community and the form of life. They submitted themselves to prolonged catechetical instruction, there it is, in which they practiced new modes of behavior and learned the stories of Israel and their fulfillment in Christ. Only after they had acquired proficiency in the alien Christian language and form of life were they deemed able, intelligently, and responsibly to profess the faith and to be baptized. Now, this happens later for a big reason. And it's because at this time now you had great persecution and the church gone underground and there was great cause to be concerned that there'd be infiltration. And there's a lot of stuff going on here that would require some of this that's not necessarily applicable to what we're talking about. But what he is observing is something that Jesus talked about. Ah, they will know you by your for the world. Amen. Right. Right. Ah, you caught me. She caught me. It, it's amazing how often he says this. And it's twice he says this. It's, it's this, this, 
it's this radically new sociology that, that comes into the world. It's this radically new community, this new polis, if you will, that it breaks into the world, a community. What do you see in Acts? I see a radical new community formed here. What are they doing? They're coming together. They're hearing the word preached. They're coming to, they're attending to the apostles' teachings, it says. They're praying together. They're what else? They're sharing all things. They're sharing all things in common together. Koinonia. They're breaking the, they're, they're practicing the sacraments together. And this stuff was radical stuff. You know, the one, some of the great per, greatest persecution came from Rome to the Christians because they were supposed to be cannibals. So they thought they were eating blood, drinking blood. Um, and, and, you know, Romans are civil, you know, civil. And they were in some respects. And so, uh, so you have this amazing new community. And so the, here's, here's some observations that I want to make here. Um, this is kind of long, and I'm, I was going to read it all. Well, let me just kind of point out a few points. There is, I'm, I'm saying this, and I'm spending so much time here because I'm asking, how does someone get converted? And oftentimes we have in our heads maybe a Billy Graham crusade. I would suggest if we really study Billy Graham's crusades, probably very few of them came in a vacuum as just, just individuals. Most of them probably came as people who had already been engaged with, had been in contact with, and had been participating in communities. But even then, I, I think it's, it's important to remember that there's, there's um, like we said when we were talking about apologetics, saving faith is both as, as much something that we catch as it is something we learn. There's a mystery because we believe in that mystery. We believe in a covenantal spiritual aspect of our faith, that which is word and logic and stipulations and all of those kind of rules. But we also believe in presence. And that presence, we believe, is mystically communicated in the body of Christ. Because that's why it's called the body of Christ. I mean, he kind of meant that. I don't know why we always have to spiritualize it. It is spiritualized, I guess, in one sense. It's not the organic body of Christ, but it is the body of Christ and the mystery of the communion of Christ to a body. And therefore, you see this observation both in Acts, you see it affirmed by Christ, that, that they will know me. What is he saying? How will they get converted to me? How will they know that I am the Messiah? Well, they will know it by your community, by the community that you take. You know, the person that really introduced this to me when I was uh, young, and some of you know him, but he was just so, so far ahead of the, of the curve. He was postmodern before he even knew what the word modern was. Do you know who I'm talking about? One person. Labrie, Francis Schaeffer. He, he was writing about this stuff so early, this idea of the others that have got it is a, a theological tradition that's known as post-liberalism. Um, and I'm not going to get into that. But, uh, but it's, it's been around. It's always been a thread. Uh, but there's a communal aspect to, to faith and how we come to that. And you're going to see it in our confession in a minute. 
So, so that's the, the point. It's, it, don't think of this. I, I, th I do think, I mean, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not uh, critiquing Josh McDowell in the sense of his being a good and sincere Christian. And I think he just probably was naive to a lot of things that were happening in his life because the way he presents it is he is this unencumbered individualist self. If he knows his book, you know, like, like what have evidence demands a verdict, things like that. And, you know, I had this intellectual curiosity that made me go and, and, and try to, to, to uh, refute Jesus Christ as the Messiah. I wanted to be a, a card-carrying atheist. And when I did that and I studied the evidence, the evidence convinced me and I became a Christian. I love the story. I think it can, it's true about the evidence. So I don't mean to diminish that at all. But what's happened from that over the years is a radical turn towards individualism and the way that we think of communion. I mean, uh, of, of faith and how we do it. And we have apologetic conferences. And if we can just win an argument, we're going to save you. Well, I, you know, for seven years at the University of Georgia, you met one of the men I used to use, Franz, Fritz Schaefer, who's a, uh, a quantum physics professor who we had speak here a couple of years ago. Um, you know, but we would do these, you know, debates and these, the, you know, these things. And we'd brawn in and we'd get hundreds and hundreds of people there and make it a big event. And there would be hundreds of people. It was cool. And I think it did a great thing for the Christians who came. I can't, I don't know if I can remember more than one or two people that ever got saved through any of those events. Now, and if they did, it was probably because there was a lot of follow-up and, uh, you know, questions and interaction, and you find out that they've been, you know, there's been a lot going on in their life besides that one event. So it's not that the event can't work, and it's not that it's not even good. Because I do think we have to set the ground for evidence. You know, we're talking about that faith-seeking reason. Well, reason still needs to be there, and these things are good, so there's a good place for it. Reason to Believe, Tim Keller's book, great book. But I'm probably giving it to someone that's not, you know, that's already, you know, that's, that's, that's already revved up a little bit. And he's seen it, and he's attracted to it. So that's just what I say here in this long, long uh, sort of thing. Um, I love this little Al Alistair McGrath quote that ends it, um, describing Blaise Pascal um, and C.S. Lewis. He says this, For Pascal, there was little point in trying to persuade anyone of the truth of religious belief. The important thing, he argued, was to make people wish that it was true. Having caught sight of the rich and satisfying vision of reality it offered, once such a desire was implanted within the human heart, the human mind would eventually catch up with its deeper intuitions. I find there to be a lot of truth in that. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, you know me, I look at this stuff and I'm always a little skeptical of everything I read, but I don't know that it's an either or. I think some people might be a little more intellectual in the way that they approach life than others, and that's fine, and I'm not going to diminish that, and others are a little more intuitive. But I think it's important, if you will, go all the way down to faith-seeking reason. It's an addendum. You see where I am right now? Yeah. So, so this idea of, of how do we get saving faith? Well, we've already what we've already said is that saving faith requires both reason, if you mean by that we have to understand the, the gospel, the doctrines. So it's both word and the Holy Spirit, regeneration. And now we've added to that that there must be a communion, baptism. That you have to have word, 
effectual calling, baptism, which is incorporation, if you will, into corporate, into community, you've been brought. You've been gra- it's, many would refer to it as engrafting into Christ, in the words of the Scripture. Being engrafted, like into a plant. You've been engrafted into this plant where you can thrive, where you can get the juice from the roots. You can't sit out there as an individualistic limb and have saving faith. You're going to have to be engrafted to have saving faith. So with that in mind, it's kind of the cart before the horse question, right? And I don't know that there is a cart before the horse, but I do think the faith-seeking reason is a very important dynamic. They were cut to the heart, hearing the Word of God, but they were cut to the heart, and then they attended the apostles' teaching. You know, I think of the Bereans' conversion. He came, he preached the gospel, kind of similar thing. They're cut to the heart, so they stayed up all night studying the Scripture to see if what he had said is really true, if it made sense. So it's a good thing, reason. We don't check our brain at the door. And that's lost us a lot of members here, by the way, I would suspect. Um, but we don't, because we want genuine, authentic, lifelong, oak tree-style plantings of Christians. You know, and not mushrooms. And these three things are all part of it. So notice this, you know, this, you could just look at this later, but, um, you know, the word of the cross we say is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why? Why is it like that? Well, that gets to the issue of effectual calling. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? You, you know this passage. In other words, being smart isn't enough. You've got to have your eyes open. And then I go to a Christian uh, example number three, um, and, the, and I deal with this issue of, of uh, a Christian assurance. You know, um, how can a person be assured that he or she is accepted by God? What is the evangelical grace as related to an understanding of repentance and faith? Um, clearly, there has to be the repentance. Clearly, there has to be solemn testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith. You see, that's the look at this witness or testimony. Clearly, they're going to have to leave something, repentance, elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity. You see this kind of growth process, but down, I'm, I'm going really fast here, I know, because I want to get back to our study guide. Faith-seeking reason, assurances, experience, and works. The gospel say, examine the person, work of Christ, and His promises for you in the gospel by God's grace, working in you, and you will want Christ as your Savior and Lord, and will more and more humbly rest in them as the basis of how you relate to God. And I give you another passage for assurance. So I just wanted to point that out and, and kind of play around with that. But yeah, it's a both ends, all I really want you to hear. So with that in mind, let's go back to the uh, handout. And we're going to move forward here with these questions. Any question you want to ask right now, though? That was quick. I don't, if, you, if you got a little frustrated, we're moving too fast. Probably was, but at least you know it's kind of there and you can go back and get it in a minute. But the key thing is, what have we got from Acts? Word, factual calling, community. And somehow, when that all comes together, there's an element of that. So with that in mind, um, we've already asked number two, is it possible not to have faith? No. Saving faith? Yes. So notice the chapter, right? Second, uh, third, notice W41, what are the three and ordinary means by which God's Word is saving faith to people? We've already said it. What are they? Word, then he talked about prayer, and and the ordinary means of grace, communion, which all imply the things we've talked about. 
um, those are the means that that's how they come to us. Praying for the Holy Spirit is the implication there. Praying for God to give it to you. The, you know, word preached and the, uh, you know, communion, the communion of the saints or the communion of the church and the holy sacraments. Okay, notice the number four. What is saving faith? Um, notice chapter but what are they? Did you remember them? I told you to underline them in your thing. Now what am I looking for? Accepting, receiving, resting. Let's, let's break those down a little bit. Accepting, receiving, and resting. I love that. So what is it? What, talk to me about accepting. If you accept something, what, must, what are we speaking about there? Has to be offered. Good. Say yes. Say yes to what? Something. In other words, you're, you're, you're accepting, I think y'all are using in the same word, way that they're going to use receiving. In other words, they mean accepting, receiving. Accepting could be the act of receiving something, and it is here, but be a little more precise. What are they receiving? They're accepting the truth of the gospel. They're accepting it in the sense that they, so I usually use the word in modern English, assent. They're assenting. In other words, can I bring you to the place where uh, you can at least say you understand what I'm talking about? See, he's not a Christian yet. That the, here's the, the, I did it just today with a, with a woman. You can pray for her. God knows who you're praying for. Pray for her. Someone who's in a desperate situation. It's been, uh, it's taken my, most of my evening last night and most of my day, the morning today. And one day maybe you'll hear more about it through a great testimony, but not yet. Um, but it was a situation and we were here waiting for some other things to go on that were bringing other people involved. And, and, um, and we got to talk about the gospel. And we were, she said, well, what is it? You know, she's not a Christian and, and off we went. And what would you say? I mean, if you really wanted to boil it down, you know, you're going to have basically these four ideas and I give you some scriptures here for it and I'll let you uh, read them later. But you're basically going to have to start with that we believe that there's a God and he's personal, personal. That was one of the things we talked about. I said it just, you know, I was telling it in the form of a testimony myself, but, but you know, it, we have to distinguish all the other gods from the true and living God, which is a personal God. That's really key. Why would you, how would you make that case to someone say, you know, well, this is not where you're necessarily making the case. You're just simply in, explaining to someone what are the things you need to assent to. One, I believe in God, a personal God, a God who is my creator, a God who is the source of and sustainer of my life, a God who is in some way or form, whatever word you want to use, infinite and eternal in his being, and therefore is the only and true ultimate Lord or ruler or authority of the world. You need to believe in God. Right? No review? Next. You need to know that our condition for life itself and everything that is good about life is that we are willing, therefore, to put ourselves in God's mercy. That we're willing to, to belong to Him, to be united to him, to be in communion with him, because to be 
separated from God is to be separated from life and everything else that, that, that comes with it. So there's a fundamental, I'm not saying this in a covenant, I could talk about, you know, a covenantal, but basically I've got to believe in God. I've got to believe that I was created in the image of God and, and my purpose in life and my, and my fulfillment in life is all derived from my relationship with God. I'm to do certain, I was to be uh, holy as he is holy in a way to reveal that God and I fail at that. That's sort of looking at the result of sin. What I try to do is get to the original sin and the original sin is I rejected God as my, my Lord. The result is I failed in my purpose. I failed in my calling to be holy and to reveal him and on it goes. Right? Three, God from Genesis 3 on, the Bible is without the story of how God is reconciling humanity to himself. God wants to be known. God, by his very nature, is gracious. God has found a way to satisfy his justice, and yet at the same time do so without taking his justice out on us, but rather putting it on himself in the Son, Jesus Christ. You know the story, but I'm going to have to get to the now get you to Christ. I'm going to have to get you to Jesus Christ and what he accomplished as the Son of God and the atonement for our sins. And then fourth, I'm going to have to tell you how you get to get it. That, it's, that the promise of the scriptures, it's offered to all those who would believe. What is belief? Ah, well see now we're back to the circle. Everything I said is something in, in some level that this person's going to have to assent to. They're going to have to assent. There's a God. Yep, I understand that. That I, that I broke, uh, broke relations with God, therefore I die. I understand that, given all the assumptions you just said. And that God, in His infinite love, satisfied all that needed to be done for me to be saved through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I, I understand what you're saying, Pastor. I understand. Okay, is this person saved? I understand, I understand, I understand. I assent to what you're saying as true from the Scripture's perspective. Is it saved? No. Next, you got to receive it. you got to receive it. And what, what does that mean? No. What is faith? I had a girl in this church many years ago come to me. I really appreciated her. Thoughtful, honest person who was just coming to Christ in this church. She was not a Christian here. She was starting to date a guy that was. And off she goes into the journey and she's coming in to talk to me. And she's a graduate student here. And she goes, I just don't understand. I don't, I just totally don't understand. Because she's kind of radish. She's from California. And she's just, I just totally don't understand how anybody can say they believe something. How do you believe something? I don't know what belief is. What does it mean to believe? How does it feel to believe? Now that's a great question. How would you answer that? How do you answer that? Why are you here? Okay. Because I'm dating a guy and he wants, I want to get married to him. I better become a Christian because I'm dating him. <laughs> well, how would you say it though? How, how would you help her with that? You know, I could say, you're, yeah, you're here, but I'm not sure that means she's here for the right reasons. What, what's going to be faith here? You know, well, we're going to have to talk about the, the ascent first. But then the receive. What is the most fundamental act of receiving? I think you might have said it earlier, but I'm not sure I can remember. It's the will. It's the want. It's the desire. 
There's a desire. There's a receiving. I got the truth, but I desire it. I want it. I, the, underneath that desire is I see my need for it. I see that, that I am in that story, and I, I now, I just got into it. Everything I told you under assent was objective truth that has no I in it. Now receive gets you to the I part, how you're affected by that truth. And is it something you want? So now we got the receipt. Yes, I want it. Receiving it. I want it. But how do you know I got it? There's the rest. Now what's rest? That's where I'm going to point her to the promise of Scripture. Something like, you know, you're saved by grace through faith alone, not of yourself, it's the free gift of God. Or I'm going to say, you know, all who believe, who you know, will be saved. There's a lot of things like that, but the one that I found to be most powerful is just this invitation that says, knock and it shall be opened, and seek and you shall find. In other words, you're over here saying, I want it, and what I can show you is the Scripture says, well, if you're wanting it, it's open to you. You got some assurance. And um, the, the Bible doesn't lie. You're wanting it. Now let's make sure you really understand this. Do you, and so that's where if you think about our, our, our membership vows, do you believe you're a sinner? See, that's going to be a, well, yeah, I know. I, I, I definitely see that in my life. Good. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is, is the only Savior of your sin? Well, they, if this person's really thinking through it, they probably would have had some conversation about his being a mediator, both God and man. How is that, you know, how do we understand that? That he could therefore be my mediator and get me that reconciliation that we're looking for. But remember the word reconciliation. At the end of the day, conversion, salvation, the gospel itself is always, it's just really all about reconciliation. Now, I can expand that to include the sanctification and everything else, but it's just this being re reunited, reunited to God. Not only in our justification, which is the base of our assurance, but now in our sanctification as we commune more and more with Him. And in our perseverance. And that's another doctrine. But it's always about being reconciled to God. That's what this journey is all about. And we see the ultimate reconciliation from heaven to earth and heaven, right? Any questions about saving faith? I really slowed down on that. It was worth every bit of my time because I find this, you, you I will just guarantee you before you're 10, year, 10 years from now, I'll bet you you have this conversation a lot. Somewhere you'll, it'll click in. Oh, we're just, we got to talk about that. What is saving faith? And it's amazing Living in Christendom, particularly how it, you know, the more you get in this culture of Christianity, the more these sort of doctrines are taken for granted, and you just think we all know what it is. And yet we don't. So there we are. Any questions here? You can look at the scriptures. What was the, what was the third point of what you have to assent to? Uh, Jesus Christ and, and the atonement of our sins, uh, in so many words. I put it in. Yeah, joining communal. Oh, the, oh, oh. First is that God is everything. Yep, that I'm I'm a sinner, blah blah blah. Third is Jesus Christ. Fourth is saving faith. Saving faith is three things. And this was getting you assent, receive, and rest. 
And again, you could say it all differently. There's no magic in the words I just used. And let's don't get weird here and clicheic and groupy. But it's, it's the concepts that obviously we're talking about. Any questions, thoughts? So if that's how you um, get saving faith, how do you strengthen your faith? Pretty much the same way. Word, Holy Spirit, regeneration, and, and continuing, you know, re, re, rebuilding ourselves and community. You know, you put those things together. It's got to happen. And it's how you're going to grow in your faith. Um, let's talk about repentance and faith. How much time we have? Uh, 7.36. I've got about 10 minutes here. Um, so remember, we've already done a lot of work on repentance, but there are a couple of questions that I think is important. Um, particularly, I want you to see repentance and, uh, so read number one and, um, well, I want to read them all, but uh, let's, let's, let's do, uh, I think the first one's obvious. You probably already read it while I was talking. Number two, somebody read it. On the first one, I'm sorry. No. But repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. Man. Yeah. I'm so glad that why? You just don't think about it being a grace. Yeah, oh, grace. What does evangelical mean, though? Yeah. Does it mean a social political movement in the United States of America? We all know that, right? Because that's what makes people think of that word now. Evangelical in this old English sense means literally spirit-filled faith. In other words, efficacial calling. Yeah. The work, the faith that only the spirit can give. A converting grace. Okay, read number two. But yeah, you're right. Grace isn't, we're going to get down on that even more here. I had a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins, as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Now, what is he, it didn't say and walking with him, and it says purposing. In your, in your, in your, uh, in the third uh, membership vow, endeavoring to walk to the best of your ability with God's grace, or something like that. So it's not perfectionism. It certainly isn't uh, judging your the authenticity by your works per se, but it is judging the authenticity by your desire. Your desire, you want to be saved from your sins. Both justified in your position with God, but also sins, actual sins. But here's something I'm, I think it's the next one that I'm really interested in. Um, uh, let's see, someone read three. Although repentance is not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. So there it is. Um, it's, it's the same thing. Um, uh, we, what do you think that the, the confession is trying to guard against here? What notion or concept of repentance do you think they're concerned that you're dealing with here? Okay, worldly sorrow, that's very possible, yeah. And what is worldly sorrow? Let me hear what you mean by that. Like feeling bad for something that you've done and like apologizing for it, but going back to it. So it, it says we are supposed to feel bad about our sin, right? So what's the difference? Yeah. 
Good. So you can feel bad about your sin, um, and yet for bad reasons, because it's not making me popular. It's getting me in trouble. It's all kinds of stuff. Or, like you said, a kind that words into death, which is a kind of moralistic sorrow, if you will. Um, but but what else like that? But what what do you what do you think else it could be talking about? What what is a very what do you think could be a possible misconception of what repentance is? I'm deserving of salvation because I've changed. Okay, that could possibly be true. And oftentimes I will hear people and um, uh, give their testimonies, and they always tell you the result of becoming a Christian as if that's their testimony. Now it's good that they have results. He helped me quit smoking, drinking, and all that stuff. But it's sometimes, I, I, you know, I'm always pushing back on those testimonies. But, but tell me exactly, you know, what what did you believe in, and, you know, what led you to this place where you believed it and gave your life to Christ, you know, kind of thing. And so um, that's true. I, I think where I'm getting at to save time is, is the third, another way, though. Repentance is often, uh, in a cliche kind of way, um, something like turning away from your sins. That's a nice way of a lot of people say it. Turning away from your sins. What could be misleading about that when we're talking about saving repentance and faith? Somehow I'm not saved until I've stopped sinning. And so it makes it very clear that what he's not trying to say is that there's this, if you're thinking of repentance in a way that it will have any cause of the pardon, as in stop sinning, has any cause effect in my being pardoned, you got it wrong. Stop sinning is not a requisite for you to be saved. And I hear that by so many people in the pulpit. If you'll just stop sinning and believe in Jesus Christ, you know, and I'm going, well, uh, he just excommunicated me. Every time I just got excommunicated, heck, I sinned before I even walked in the door today, and I was trying to get ready for the gospel. You know, every time, guys, please, man, if you have a pastor one day and you're not here, or teacher, and, you know, I said not here because I'm going to be here until you die, right? And I, I don't know. <laughs> or, or Kevin or whoever. But the point I'm saying is, is if you hear someone say, I, take, I don't know, get to know them first and love them and all that stuff, but somewhere go up there and say, you know, I, I'm really confused because you just tell me every week I can't participate in the communion. And I don't know what to do. I'm taking you kind of literally here. I mean, you, you tell me to stop sinning, and I'm sinning. I just can't help it. <laughs> you know, and help them, help them see what they're hearing. It's, 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 I don't think they, most of these people know this, but, believe, you know, understand this, because they are Christendom. They're, they're, everybody kind of knows you're saved, you belong to the church kind of stuff, which is, again, not necessarily true. But it just gets all lazy and sloppy. I'm just... You know, I'm going to be more careful here. I'm starting to get a temper tantrum. I'm sorry. But we just can't be sloppy. You know, it really causes people's life here. You know, and it's really a big deal. I've had more people come in here struggling with assurance than any other dilemma, I think, in the whole. I mean, by far, in my 20 some years here, the assurance has been one, if not the greatest struggle of Christians coming from Christendom, um, especially. And, you know, I just breaks your heart. I mean, he died for them to be assured. He went to this great pain for them to feel the joy of, of their salvation. And they can't feel it because of all this sloppy stuff. Stop right now, Preston. 
so there it is. It's it, what, then what is repentance? I, I, it's 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 turning away from sin, and a better way to say it would be turning away from say false gods, false confidences, that other faith. It's, I said it earlier, it's turning away from what we could call sinful faith. It's turning away from an alternative Christ, even if we didn't call it Christ. Thanks for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked the show, please consider a five-star rating. Share it with your friends or write to us. For this episode's show notes, visit our website. Until next time, this is CPC Podcast.